Okay, let's continue um, from where we left off quickly, just finishing off 1 Samuel. Uh, David is on the run, and during this time, he's he's in the wilderness, he's hiding in caves and all kinds of places. But during this time, when they're in the wilderness, they would also protect the people of Israel. Because remember, they face attacks from the nations every now and then. So they would attack, sorry, they would protect the uh, the Israelites from the other nations. So they were kind of like a Robin Hood gang, right? Think of like mercenaries uh, protecting the poor and the vulnerable. And then they would go and ask people for food and stuff, right? Food and supplies where they had. So if you go to chapter 25, you get the account of Nabal or Nabal, the fool. So in this chapter, what they do is there's this man named Nabal and Nabal in Hebrew uh, sounds like the word fool, right? So Nabal sounds like fool. And <clears throat> they protect his property, right? They've protected him. They've kind of offered their services, even though it's indirectly. And so one of the, one of the days, David sends some men to ask Nabal for some food. And Nabal is like, he's very rude, right? He's very rude. And he's described as a very rude and arrogant man. And he's like, I don't even know who David is. And he refuses to help Right? And so David is infuriated, he's angry, and then he tells his men to get their swords, to strap on their swords, and he tells them, we're going to kill these, the, the, the people, uh, the, this man's family and all these people, and he tells his men to leave no man alive. Right? And remember, this is like, not just like a group of 15 people, it's like 400, David had like 400 men with him, so he means business. So Nabal had a wife, a wife named Abigail, and she hears that David's men were around, right? And that Nabal was rude to them. So she knows that David is going to attack. And so she gets a lot of food together. She gets uh, wine, bread, raisins. She has like 200 loaves of bread. And then she intercepts David before she gets to Nabal. And she gets to David and she says, look, David, God has chosen you. You're God's chosen. You're a mighty man of God. Don't do this thing. Don't kill Nabal because it's going to be innocent blood on your hands. Right? Because this is not the same as killing the Philistines or the Amalekites. And so this was, this was just personal revenge. Right? David was hurt. His ego had been knocked down. And so Abigail kind of encourages him. He's like, look, you fight the Lord's battles. So don't do this. And David, David comes to senses. He's like, you're right. Thank you so much for intercepting me. And then David turns around and then he goes back. Right? And then Nabal dies a few days later, and then David marries Abigail. It's just, it's just drama. It's just drama in this book. And then um, Second Samuel, oh wait, you, uh, Percy wanted to know about the account in chapter 28. Right? Are you guys familiar with it? Saul and the medium of Endor. So... Uh, if I remember correctly, Saul is kind of feeling under pressure because the Philistines are ga- gathering to attack and um, he sees no way out. And so he consults a medium, so he consults a witch, you know, and uh, he gets this witch to contact the dead, right? The dead being Samuel. So he gets this witch to contact Samuel and um, Samuel actually does appear, or the spirit of Samuel, we talk, appears and then talks to Saul and kind of rebukes Saul, saying, Saul, what are you doing? Why did you, you know, summon me? This is what the Lord will do to you. 
and tells him that uh, you, your life will be taken from you, right? You're going to die at the hands of the Philistines. And Saul is devastated and he falls over and, you know, he knows that it's over. Um, and then the witch or the medium kind of comfort him and they're like, you know, eat some food, get ready, you still have a battle to fight. Um, so I'm guessing that the, the issue here is on mediums, right? Was it, what is happening there? So, okay, what, what are specific questions? Well, was uh, Saul deceived by, by the witch, or this is actually the thing? So I think, yeah. Uh, when you read in a, uh, and verse uh, 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines was afraid and his heart trembled greatly, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by urine or by prophets. And like then then Saul speaking and we know someone is a prophet. So him speaking is that God not talking to someone through what he said is not gonna So are you saying is is that God talking through the medium, or? Yeah, God said that He won't answer a soul oh. to prophets, dreams, or you. Mm. But then we see later that Samuel, who is a prophet, is speaking. So, is that so being deceived, or maybe is this actually happening, or maybe is this <coughs> like, you know, so men deceived? And maybe I don't know. So I think it is the spirit of Samuel. Like the text makes it clear that that is the spirit of Samuel. Even the spirit of Samuel talking, that's how Samuel would talk to Saul normally and kind of rebuke him and, you know, tell him what and what not to do. So that is very much. So remember the, the, the um, what's this thing called? Me, like me, using mediums and I'm just going to say witchcraft right, to, as a term. Buloi. <laughs> um, so like that was banned, like that, that was an, an abomination to God, right? It's an abomination. And even in the, like the Levitical laws, Deuteronomy, I think you were to be, were you to, to be put to death. You were, to, yeah, you were to be stoned if you were ever caught practicing that, right? So, um, it's, it's not, okay, there's still like a lot of debate on this passage, right, as to whether, I think it's clear it was Saul's, it was Samuel's spirit. I think a lot of the debate is around can people communicate with the dead or the deceased like we see here, right? And I think, I think when you read scripture, this is the only case where this ever happens right like this never actually happens so i think it's an exception that god had made but i don't think that mediums can do this because of what we've learned about uh, in matthew where it teaches that uh, you know once you once you're dead the spirit of the dead it's matthew 25 but the spirits of the the dead are now you know they're separated from us there's kind of no way for us to contact them right you either eternally with the lord or Eternally in uh, judgment. So, yeah, um, 
don't know if there's any other questions on that, but that, that, that's what I think from that passage. Witchcraft is also a form of power, but it's not God's power. So we have this tendency of being attracted to people who show power, but we're not sure what the source of power is. So witchcraft also is quite powerful. We also see that when Pharaoh gets magicians to imitate what mm-hmm. God was doing through Moses and the Israel, we see that. But they can't undo it. Like God's power is always greater than mm-hmm. what they're doing. So it's also like a form of witchcraft. So here we can see that um, the witch, even though God had said, because God didn't go back on his word, he didn't speak to Saul because he, 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 he stood on his word of saying, yeah. I'm not going to speak to you through. So he goes and seeks another power outside of God yeah. to talk to the dead. But Samuel also is rebuking Saul you know, and saying, why have you disturbed me? Yeah. So it is, they were, he was able to, the witch was able to conjure the spirit. It was not the witch deceiving the power, the evil power of the witch was able to wake up the dead. Yeah. But he should, it's not allowed. You're not allowed yeah. to do that. Um, it, it goes back to when we talked about how the, like you're saying, the, the witches, the mediums, the false prophets that we looked at in, in Exodus, how do they do it? Right? Remember, they can do it through the power of Satan, who is the god of this world. But even when these things happen, when we see them happen, it's not out of the control of God. You know, it's not like these things are happening and God's like, oh no, like, you know, what, what happened here? Like, I thought, you know, there's been a breach in the system or whatever. Um, it's not the case, right? Like, this is all part of God's plan. And, um, yeah, it's not like, I mean, like, that scripture forbids these things. Kind of implies that these things can happen, you know? It's like, otherwise it, would, it wouldn't even address it. You know, wouldn't say like what is sorry, yeah. So like if Samuel was a godly man, how come the medium was able to conjure up his spirit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when when you look at uh, like how the Lord dealt with Samuel from especially with Saul from the beginning of Constitution Act, you see from the beginning Saul was very, very disobedient to the Lord. And well, when, when Israel said they want a king, God said, this king will do this thing, do this, 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 How the Lord did it is this. He allowed all of this just to fulfill prophecy. Just the same when it says that um, eventually uh, you will give it to your own little kids. That's so much eventually. So this was just God's power. He could have just uh, destroyed both of them, but he just the Lord just saying to, to Saul, I will give it to you. And by the way, you go to evil things because you don't trust in me. I won't speak to you. You go to where you're going to go, but still you're going to keep your response. But I won't speak to you. Okay, so we're in second time now, right? After uh, David has married the wife of a guy who just died. So we get to second Samuel, and uh, Saul dies on the battlefield. Not through fighting, uh, he kills himself, and um, another guy. Oh, okay, like like I don't know if you guys have noticed the previous account. There's kind of like two accounts of Saul's death. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. So the first one is he kills himself because he sees the enemy coming, right? Second one is this guy, the Malachite, um, sees that sees Saul is in trouble, and you know the the people are gonna kill him, and so uh, he tells Saul tells the armor bearer to put push the sword through him, but the armor bearer says no, he can't, and then he runs away, and then that guy, the Malachite, comes and then does it for Saul, and right, he kills Saul. Yeah, kills Saul and then takes the crown and takes the amulet and then takes it back to David, right? So um, what, what is happening there is this guy, the Malachite, is actually lying, right? He's lying to gain favor with David, right? Because, you know, how did he gain the crown? Just because he knows David is the chosen one, so he's trying to gain favor in his sight. And look, I kill Saul for you. And here's his crown, here's his amulet to, um, to prove, right? Um, so yeah, normally I think like, uh, in the first reading you would think, oh, okay, this guy will be rewarded because, you know, he finally got rid of it. But David, David says, what does he say? Weren't you afraid to kill the Lord's anointed? And then he has that man killed. Um, and then in chapter, and then after that, he, David, David writes a beautiful poem about Saul and Jonathan. Then we get to chapter 5, chapter 5, okay, David becomes king. In chapter 6, they get the Ark of the Covenant moved to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 7, we get the Davidic Covenant, right? We have seen the Adamic Covenant, the covenant God made with Adam. We've seen the Abrahamic Covenant. We've seen the Noahic Covenant and the one he made with Moses. And now God makes one with David in chapter 7, right? So we won't go into it. We press for time. Um, and also in chapter 7 David wants to build a house for the Lord right? he wants to build a temple but God says no God says I will build a house for you and God says he will build a house for David and house in this passage and many other passages actually, actually means a, a dynasty right? dynasty, dynasty so there will be a line of kings after David and this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ but it's also fulfilled in the church because we are prophets, priests, and kings. Also, what's interesting about this house is when you get to Acts chapter 15, what happens is there's this uh, council, there's a council in Jerusalem, there's a Jerusalem council, and they have an issue, and the Jews are meeting to discuss, right? They're meeting with Peter and Paul, and I think Jane was also there, and... The focus there is the Jews coming to Christ. Now they want to know what are we going to do about the Gentiles, right? What are the conditions for Gentile membership in the church? And Peter and Paul stand up and talk about the Gentiles being saved and added to the church just as the Jews are, right? God is adding the Jews, sorry, the Gentiles to the church. And then James says that the Gentiles becoming part of the church is the restoration of the tent or the house of David, right? So the church is a fulfillment of the house of David. Because Christ is the ultimate fulfillment and we are the body of Christ. So that's how um, uh, the church fulfills that. In chapter 11, we get David and Bathsheba. Another infamous uh, chapter. We all know the story of it, surely. Right? So look at how the narrator sets it up for us in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. 
that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from, from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So, what is wrong with this picture in the beginning? Exactly, right? He's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not fighting, right? David is not fighting, he's not at war, he's strolling about leisurely whilst all his men are fighting, right? He's only waking up in the afternoon, right? Students. <laughs> He's only waking up in the afternoon. How did you? <laughs> oh, also, okay. I thought I was only students, but it's, it's, it's professionals as well. So, how how did he get there? You think how did he get to the point where he's not actually where he's supposed to be out at war, and he's being lazy, just taking it easy, and what do you guys think might be the case? Comfortability. Oh, comfortability. Yeah, I think it's it's complacency because it's just winning battle after battle after battle, and things are like just you know going well. So now he's become lazy and complacent. He should be fighting the Lord's battles, but he's not, right? And he sees Bathsheba bathing naked, which is also like another weird issue because she's on the roof, right? And if you've seen like okay, maybe like maybe I should have gotten a picture, but like the roofs were kind of like public space, you know, because people would go and actually use their roofs the way people would use a dining area, right? Uh, maybe the land was emptier because people had war, but anyways, that's besides the point. Um, he calls for her, he sees her, right, because he's walking on his roof, where he sees her passing uh, naked, and he calls for her, and then he sleeps with her, and she falls pregnant. And now David has an issue on his hand, what does he do? Right. He calls the general, or the husband, back from the battle. Right? His name is Uriah. And David is like, go sleep with your wife. Uh, you've, you've fought hard. You know, you're a great general. You do well. You know, go enjoy your wife. You've earned it. And the husband is like, no. How can I do that? You know, uh, my soldiers are out in the field, far away from their wives. And yet, I get this privilege. And even then, I think in the Levitical laws, it was forbidden during times of war for men to, uh, uh, to sleep with their wives because he's supposed to be out there fighting, right? So Uriah is actually a very noble man, right? And you get that sense just when you read that, the account. And so David, the guy who wrote the 23rd Psalm, right, gets him drunk so that he can cover up his fornication and adultery, right? But Uriah still refuses to sleep with his wife, so David gives him a letter, which is basically his own death warrant. And in verse 15, it says, In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. Right? So just look at the callousness of David at this stage. Right? What is his sin driving him to do? Right? That, that's what sin does. It hardens you. If you don't deal with it quickly, you find yourself doing the craziest things. Here's a man giving this guy his letter and saying he'd give it to this uh, general, which is his own death warrant, right? Saying, 
in the battle, leaving him at the forefront where he's the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, leave him alone so he's isolated and he's definitely going to die. And so Joab does as he was told in the letter and then Joab sends a message back saying Uriah is dead. David is like, don't worry about it, you know, it's just the way the sword falls. You know, it is what it is. Some people live, some people die. It's just war, right? It's kind of insane that this is going on in the life of David, right? And here's, here's what like, I want to emphasize if, uh, and what we, we kind of can see when you look at the story of Abigail and when you look at David now, right? Nobody in the life of David is trying to stop him at this point. Right? You don't see it anywhere in scripture. No one is there to tell him, what are you doing? Stop it. Don't do this. What's going on? What's wrong with you? And the application is, you're, not, you're never living the Christian life and then the next day you become an ex-murderer. You know, the next day you become a rapist. The next day you uh, cheat on your spouse. Right? You're not leading a happily married life and then all of a sudden, a scandal happens. And now you're filing for divorce. Right? It may look like that from the outside, but if you're walking close to the Lord and you're fighting your sin and you're striving to know God better and, and obey and grow in sanctification, then this story tells you that the Lord will actually stop you. Right? But what we see with David is that it's a gradual slope. Right? He starts off doing he starts off with laziness and complacency. He's not actually where he's supposed to be in the war. Right? And then he kind of grows, he commits uh, adultery, and now he's committing murder. You know, it's like steps to it. It's never just a quick jump. And <clears throat> you see that this lifestyle of sin, um, he's probably like isolating himself, and there's no one there to stop you. Right? And surely we can all testify to that moment in your life when you're about to do something wrong, and then someone walks in or you get a phone call, or some event, or some person comes to mind, and it stops you from doing something that you would have sinned against the Lord. You would have sinned in this way or that way, right? And Abigail would have come in and stopped you, right? David had an Abigail stop him from murdering an innocent, right? When he was walking with the Lord, and now there's no one stopping him. But when you're fighting sin, usually God, uh, when you're fighting sin, God will keep you, right? God will protect you. Um, and when you're not, God usually gives us over to our desires, which is actually a scary thing, right? When we fall, we don't fall far. That's the point I'm making. It's not like it's a huge leap. It's always like, oh, okay, but this is how he's been living. And you've always seen it with scandals, you know, when, uh, especially with pastors falling into sexual sin. It's never just like, yes, like, oh, but he's been sending messages to women. He's been doing this. He's been doing this for years or for months. It's always a gradual build up, which is, that's the way sin works. <clears throat> and so I think that's why scripture tells the story like this, right? It's not like David woke up one day and then he's like, you know, um, uh, let me go sleep with another man's wife and then kill him, right? There were things wrong. He's not gone to battle. He's lazy. He's complacent. Why? And so once he had done the adultery, it was lying and manipulating people to get them drunk and then it's not such a big step to murder anymore, right? Sin is a slippery slope. So from the Psalms, because they are Psalms that David writes about this uh, during, his, during this period in his life, not just Psalm 51, right? There's more of them and we'll look at them when we get there. 
Um, some of them David wrote knowing that God's hand was heavy upon him because of his guilt, right? Uh, mental anguish can be a result of sin, right? He wasn't confessing his sin. And David speaks of a sickness in his bones and in his mind, and he goes through emo the emotional consequences of sin, right? The consequences of guilt can affect us mentally. So mental anguish can be a result of sin. And I remember reading an article a while back about this uh, Christian pastor, and he's writing about guilt and how guilt, we are a society plagued by guilt. And that's why people struggle with like mental illness and all that stuff. It's a result of sin and it's a result of guilt. And it was very interesting. Um, he said, sorry, I just wrote down some of the things. He said, for Christians, the guilt is dealt with because it is just clean gone, right? Christ takes away the guilt. For the world, the guilt can be shifted or moved around a little bit, but it is always present. It's always there. Not only so, but in societies given over to pagan assumptions, like our society has been, the guilt grows and accumulates until we are all living next to these huge reservoirs of guilt, right? The more people live as though there were no transcendent reality, as though there were no God, the more people feel free to lie, to fornicate, to steal, to murder and perform abortions. And so year after year, the reservoirs of guilt grow in magnitude. Forgiveness can deal with this if only the gospel is preached. But coping with the guilt is harder because every year there is more to cope with. And the lies that have to be told are more and more transparent. Now it's the glory of the Christian gospel that it proclaims free and sovereign forgiveness to the worst of sinners. There is no upper limit on how much sin God can wash away. God can take a blaspheming and insolent man, a persecutor with blood on his hands, and transform him into an apostle to the Gentiles, using him over the course of decades to write the majority of the New Testament. This has to be paid for, of course, but it is never paid for by the forgiven sinner. The redemption price was the blood sacrifice of Christ on the tree. As the hymn puts it, Jesus paid it all. In contrast, whenever the great mass of people are left to cope with their guilt, the people become fearful and ashamed and cowards and they are broken. Right? So he says that, and I think that's very true. That's very true. And it's true of David. David suffers emotional and, and mental anguish, and the Lord leaves him in this state for a while. Eventually, God is gracious, and he sends him the prophet Nathan to speak to him, and then Nathan tells a wonderful parable. Nathan tells him this parable about a rich man and a poor man and their lambs. So the rich man wants to host some visitors, some guests. And so instead of slaughtering his own lamb, he goes and takes the poor man's lamb and he slaughters it. Right. And David hears the story and he's furious. He's like, yo, this bad man must die. Right? And rich man must die. So do you see what happens there with the parable? And that's, that's the powerful thing about the parables. And I think it's why the Lord, it's why Jesus uses them so much. Is that if you've noticed, parables, first of all, they draw us in. And then they cause us to make an ethical or moral judgment. Right? Which actually condemns us. Right? It's, it's kind of genius. They're like simple, but they're effective like that. Because you read a parable and you always will insert yourself in it. Right? You're like, sure, am I one of the foolish uh, girls at the wedding, you know, am I the one who's bearing his talents because I see my master, as I see God as a wrathful, vengeful God, you know, um, am I the prodigal son, or I'm being a prodigal son, right, 
And so that's what happened to David here. He's like, that man must die. And then Nathan is like, you are that man. Right? Poor washer wives. And, and then, um, should David have been put to death for what he did? Absolutely. Definitely. Right? Adultery and, and murder, they carry uh, death sentences. So Nathan tells him that the Lord has forgiven him and put it behind him though, but there will still be consequences for David. Right? The child is going to die. David's going to have a child, but the child is going to die. The child is going to die amongst other consequences. So there's always wonderful forgiveness with the Lord, but unfortunately sometimes we may have to deal with the consequences to our sin. So David's child is born but falls sick, and verse 16 tells us, says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with him. On the seventh day, the child died. So the child dies, and David says, uh, and David, he stops, he stops fasting, and then he eats, right? And then he gets up and washes himself. And his servants are like, okay, now the child is dead. Now you're going to eat? Shouldn't you be more devastated, more sad? Right? So his behavior kind of confuses them. But David responds in verse 22. He says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Right? So David stops fasting once the child has died. And the people think, oh no, the child has died, he's going to be so upset, but he's not. And what we can see there is that we do have the privilege, sometimes we face consequences of coming to God and saying, God, please remove this from me. You know, remove this consequence of my sin from me. Yes? Uh, regarding verse 23, it says, uh, but now he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? My question is here. I shall go to him. him. Does he speak up what happened? Is he hopeful that he will see him again? But he will not return to me. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Yeah, so I think he's speaking about heaven. And it's one of the arguments used for those of us who believe that you know, children go to heaven when they die in their infancy. Because David is a child of God, he's going to heaven when he dies. So he will be reuni- reunited with his child. Um, many times. I mean, that isn't, isn't a universal painting of uh, all children or children under the covenant of believers? So, we had this discussion last week, right? <laughs> yeah. So, like that, that would be my answer. So, it's um, um, all children that die in the infancy are elect. Right? I would, I would go with that. Why? Why? Were you here last week? (laughs) Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a very short answer. I can't remember what reason Mike was like gave. Yeah. So it's yeah. So that's also my reason. It's 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 that they are not capable of being accountable for their sins, if that makes sense. So it's like, um, remember, you go to hell for the sins you've committed, for the acts you've committed, right? So the example I like to use is, you know, when there's a, a child, like a three or four year old, you've heard those stories, they, they take their father's gun and they play with it and they shoot their father. We don't send those children to, to prison, right? Just say it's a terrible accident, it's sad that happened, but 
you know, life goes on for the child because they are not yet able to be morally accountable for that. So it's the same reason with, with children. Um, like what, what simple acts can they really be accountable for? That's Okay, I think perhaps I like misheard something somewhere there because I thought you said like some children go to hell. So oh no, 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 it's the other way around. So yeah. Just to add quickly, um, one of the reasons is that we, as God is loving, and I think we see that on the cross, you know, um, there's four things that happen there, you know, uh, grace, love, forgiveness, and also the most important thing is justice. God is just God, so he would always judge fairly, and I think David knew that, and that also would just say that God is just God. You know, we could just say, because you are a child, and you go to hell because of one of our lives, you know, the just God, so it would be fair to everyone. Mm -hmm. 100%. So it's a fair God. Yes. Last thing I think Mike said was, um, it's quite good that it wasn't clear in the Bible. When the command is put is to preserve life, mm -hmm. you know, that's the clearer command. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think they've been cults like that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy. It's sad. Um, okay, so David. Um, David's like, you know, the, the consequences have happened, right? And we can learn from that, right? If the Lord, if we ask the Lord to remove consequences from our sin, if he does, praise the Lord. If he doesn't, praise the Lord, you know? We carry on, we get up, and we go about our lives and still try to honor the Lord regardless. Do you have a question? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm saying maybe another, like, clear application mm. would be, um, is this on the verge of committing a heinous sin? Mm. Boldness to come before God, before the throne of grace, to continue to fight and weep for mercy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually a call that our guilt should not lead us to despair, mm. that there's no more forgiveness left in God. Mm. He's a long suffering God towards us. Yeah. No, it's very important actually, because, like, like you're saying, guilt does lead to despair. And then we told about Satan, who, as to that, by, he is an accuser, right? Condemns us. When the reality is in Christ, we are forgiven of our sins. So, yeah, we can come to him in boldness. Okay. So, continue to look at David. One of his um, shortfalls, one of the issues with his character, is that he just isn't a very good father. Right? David, in my opinion, is a terrible father. And actually, in the Old Testament, there just aren't many good fathers. Right? <laughs> Um, you've seen that with the patriarchs already. Um, and on top of that, David is a very strong leader in many ways. You know, he's a great leader and he's a model of a leader. But in many ways, he's also a very weak leader, right? At some point, he doesn't deal and confront with a man named Joab in his army. And he says, because they are too strong for me, right? So Joab, if you read about him, he's a very fascinating character. He's like the mafia, you know. He's like the mafia. He's just ruthless. Uh, if anyone gets in his way, you know, they are dead. Uh, he's a very valiant warrior, you know. He's very valiant and he's capable when, you, when he comes to war. He's the kind of guy you want on your side, right? Um, 
And he was loyal to David for over 40 years, but he was also very violent and could be erratic at times. And David failed as a leader to deal with Joab and discipline him because, you know, Joab brought about a lot of issues, but David just didn't step up when he should have. And David also could not deal with his own family. That's where you see a lot of his failures, actually. When Amnon, his son, is in love with his half-sister, right? Uh, well, Amnon says he loves his half-sister, but really it was lust, right? Because we know that once he sleeps with her, well, he actually raped her. Once he rapes her, right? He's disgusted by her and he doesn't want her anymore. He doesn't constantly to pee around her. And so um, Tamar, the, the, the half-sister, then says, you need to marry me now. You need to do the right thing, you know, as is custom, as is law, because you've, you've violated me, you've brought shame upon me. You need to marry me to take that away. Um, but Amnon refuses. And so David, as a father, he does nothing. He doesn't even intervene. Right? Can you imagine that? And then Tamar's half-brother, Absalom, right, the Antichrist with the beautiful hair, um, what does he do? He wants revenge, right? So he kills Amnon. And um, you would think David would do something then, but he doesn't. He's like, oh, let's carry on, you know, life goes. And so what, what happens, so actually, like, uh, from the period of Bathsheba, and Tamar and Absalom and all of them, this period is known by theologians as the canonization of the house of David, right? So canonization refers to the making like a worldly, you know, it's becoming very worldly. Uh, because what happened in Jerusalem never even happened in Egypt, right? Abraham's worst nightmare has come true in Jerusalem. So remember what Abraham was concerned about when he went into Egypt? What did he tell Sarah to do? told her to act like his sister. Yeah, act like, act like, pretend to be my sister because he was fearful, fearful that they would kill him and take his wife, Sarah. Uh, sorry, that they would kill him and take his wife because she was beautiful, right? But that's not how the pagans behaved, right? So the pagans actually weren't that bad. But when you get to Jerusalem and you look at David and them, what do you have? You have them behaving worse than the pagans ever did, right? You have um, Uriah being killed by David. You have... David sleeping around, you have the drama that's happening in David's family, right? So, sadly, Christians often behave worse than pagans, right? And you see that even today, you know, like, one of the biggest accusations Christians, as a Christian, you will deal with because of other Christians, sometimes because of you, is oh, you Christians are hypocrites, but you live like this, and da 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 And sadly, it's true, you know, it's true. You do see genuine believers living lifestyles, sometimes doing things worse than uh, pagans, Right, you've seen that in history. Uh, some some church denominations do crazy things, hectic things, where even the world is like, oh, I "Can't believe you Christians!" You know, sometimes it's actually justified when you get those accusations. And so, <clears throat> it shouldn't be like that at all. But unfortunately, it can be the case. And uh, going back to Absalom, Absalom is arrogant and is full of himself. Um, when he went around, when he went anywhere, he would have twenty chariots to go in front of him. Right. So imagine like there's some guy in two days time going somewhere and there's always a convoy in front of you. You know, that's who he was because he wants to be looked at. He wants to be seen and admired. And we told he's beautiful like an angel. So, you know, that just makes it worse. And eventually Absalom, there's friction between him and his dad uh, because he resents his, his father. He resents David. And um, eventually he stages a coup against David. David flees from Jerusalem. 
but um, in a pursuit, Absalom dies, and it's ironic because he dies because of his head. Right? Dies because he's riding a horse, and then his head gets caught up in a in a tree branch, and then uh, he got caught, and then someone came and sliced it. It was Joab. Right? Joab, you see why he wants him on your side? And then Joab came and then sliced his head off. Right. So the thing that he was extremely proud of is what got him killed. And then just going back, to, going to the last chapter, to chapter twenty-four. This is the census of David, right? So, verse 1 says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against, against Israel. Right? So the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Right? So, uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to look at First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, right? It's talking about the same account. Um, but there, it doesn't say that God incited David to do the census. It says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Right? It's crazy. So where Samuel two, where Second Samuel says the Lord, First Chronicles says the devil. Right? And but you guys are students of school, the Bible, you know what's happening there. Right? Right. No, Satan is the means that God is using. That's how we reconcile those two. Oh, come on, guys. <laughs> come on. <laughs> I understand. It's like, so, yeah, Satan is the means that God uses, right? And we see this clearly, like in the book of Job, who makes Job sick? Satan does. But Job says, shall we not receive both good and evil from the Lord? Right? Okay, so we're going to end it there. Um, any questions? For the consensus. Yeah. When you do chronicles, you'll find out. So let's come. Uh, you mentioned that, but um, I think, for example, one of the things that is worth 